Welcome to the HR Stories Podcast, where there is a lesson in every story. If we listen well, stories help us learn and teach us ways to act. Each year, John Tallheimer and Chuck Smickin deliver thousands of seminars around the country to business owners, executives, and HR professionals, discussing the fundamentals of human resources, best legal practices, and risk reduction activities for organizations. This podcast allows us to dig deep into the human resources experience and see where businesses go wrong. Each episode, we share a different story where a company missed the mark, and then we'll provide recommendation based on our years of working in the human resources field. Sit back, listen, learn, and act. Welcome to the HR Stories Podcast, where there is a lesson in every story. And now our host, John Tallheimer and Chuck Simikian. Hey, this is Chuck. Yeah, this is John. Welcome to season two. We're really excited to be back. This season, we've decided to dedicate it to the stories that changed HR. We're going to look back on legacy cases that changed the way we interpret the laws. This week, we'll be talking about sexual discrimination in the workplace. Absolutely. And this is a big one this week, John. You know, as we both consult and teach HR and employment law, I'm sure you're familiar with the concept that an employer may be liable for supervisory employees whose sexual harassment of subordinates results in a hostile work environment amounting to job discrimination, correct? Absolutely, yeah. It's one of those things we discuss in all of our training, right? We want to make sure the employer knows that they are responsible for how their supervisor behaves. Sure, and it makes sense And it feels like that concept is indisputable, and it is, but it wasn't always that way. Well, tell me more about that. Yeah, so as we both know, sex harassment is a big deal when it comes to employment law, but it wasn't always like that. Sure, it was illegal, and companies had some policies But it wasn't until the late 1990s that the U.S. Supreme Court got involved, set some things straight, and basically changed the ways companies view everything from training to investigations and discipline. Chuck, I think this might be a good time to pause just before we get into the case, because I really want to get into the case. But I want people to understand how laws are created and then interpreted, right? And so... What happens is your federal, our federal government or the state government will create a law, but then it's, the interpretation is really left up to the courts. And so a lot of times laws go onto the, onto, the, onto the registration and they're set up and then all of a sudden we're not sure how to interpret them. And so in this case, there were laws there, but we weren't sure how best to interpret them. And so then the Supreme Court got involved and said, okay, this is how we're going to interpret them. So let's go back to 1985, and Beth Farragher is a 19-year-old college student at Florida Atlantic University. She begins working part-time during summers as a lifeguard for the city of Boca Raton Parks and Recreation in order just to put herself through college. See, Beth loved recreational sports, and even though there were only a handful of female lifeguards, this job was perfect because she got to be outdoors. In fact, in Beth's own words, she says, at first, ocean lifeguarding seemed like a dream job. You know, the pay was great 
at approximately one and a half times the current minimum wage. The hours were great. We were paid for an eight hour day that included a one hour morning workout and a one hour lunch break. She said the environment was great. I was working at the beach in beautiful, sunny South Florida. Who could ask for more? That definitely does sound like the dream job. Yeah, it, and, and it was. You know, there were lifeguards that worked out of the, this beach office uh, with their supervisors, and now all of whom were male, uh, uh, Bill Terry, David Silverman, and Robert Gordon. And their routine was structured with a clear chain of command. You see, the lifeguards reported to lieutenants and captains, and they all reported up to Bill Terry. And Terry was in his mid-40s. He was the chief of the Marine Safety Division, and he had the authority to hire lifeguards to supervise all aspects of the lifeguards' work assignments, to engage in counseling, to deliver reprimands, oral uh, verbal reprimands, and to make a record of any such discipline. Now, Silverman and Gordon were also responsible for making the lifeguard daily assignments and for supervising their work and fitness training, but they all reported up to Bill Terry. And it then sounds, Bill, go ahead, I'm sorry. I know, it sounds like it's very militaristic, if I can use that word, where there was very strict structure on who reported to whom. Yeah, exactly. And now the lifeguards really had no significant contact with higher city officials. Terry, Silverman, and Gordon were it. Okay, so that was their boss. Those are the people they went to. If there was an issue, those were the people they knew, right? They didn't know anybody in City Hall is what you're saying. You are correct. Okay, And, and Beth uh, Farragher, she worked for the department for a total of five years until June 1990. Must be now, a pretty good job. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she absolutely loved it. And um, But here's where it gets interesting. In April 1990, two months before she resigned, uh, she had a co-worker. The co-worker's name, and I, if I get this correct, it was Nancy Ewenshu. Uh, and she was actually a former lifeguard. Uh, she wrote to the city's personnel director complaining that Terry and Silverman had harassed her and other female lifeguards. Okay. So Nancy had sent a complaint to the city of personnel director, who is in today's term, the human resources person oversees the staffing. Exactly. And, and as I read into this, actually, Nancy had worked for a number of years with Beth. Nancy actually left her job, uh, took another job at another lifeguard uh, facility uh, along the beach. And she waited. Here's the interesting thing is she was so afraid of, of the lifeguard management there that she waited in her new job. She waited until she hit her 90 days probationary period before she actually sent that letter because she was afraid that uh, Terry Silverman and Gordon would actually uh, derail her new job. Wow. So what does that say? Right. I mean, that says a lot about uh, how Nancy felt the environment was like. It was still that pressure of those individuals still had that. And she had gone right. She had moved on to another place exactly. uh, and she was still afraid of them. 
Exactly. So, so the investigation goes on, right? And so the uh, following the investigation, the city actually found that Terry and Silverman had behaved improperly. They reprimanded them, required them to choose, though, between a suspension without pay or they could forfeit uh, some annual leave. And they actually took the docking of the vacation pay, but both kept their jobs. So uh, you may not know the answer to this, and that's okay. But were, was it a full-time job in Florida as Terry and Silverman? Did they have full-time jobs? As far as everything that I've researched, yes. Okay. These were full-time, year-round jobs working for the city of Parks and, and Recreation. Okay. Well, it makes sense in Florida. You could do that. Okay, great. Yeah. So unsatisfied with this outcome, Farragher, Beth Farragher, and Ewan Chu, Nancy Ewan Chu, filed a complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, EEOC, in the winter of 1990. And after a two-year process, the EEOC then gave them the right to sue. So can I ask a question here? Because I just sure. want to make sure this is clarified for our listeners and also for me. So the original complaint was just from Nancy Anachu. Yes. Okay. And so, and then following that investigation, the city said, okay, Terry and Silverman, we're just going to take your uh, annual leave away. We've decided that's what we're going to do. And then Farragher came and said, okay, now I want to combine my complaint with Nancy. So Beth and Nancy then combined their complaints and went to the EEOC. Sure. So what exactly? So I don't have the exact details of this, but I, I imagine uh, Nancy Ewanshu went to Beth Farragher and said, look, do you believe this? And they were incensed. They were incensed. They're like, really? These guys get to keep their job and they just lose uh, some vacation pay? And so they, they, they uh, went to the EOC, they filed this and, you know, two years passed and they got that right to sue. So Farragher took it forward. Beth Farragher took it forward and she herself brought an action against Terry uh, Silverman and the city in 1992, asserting claims under Title VII and Florida law. The complainant or the complaint alleged that Terry and Silverman created a sexually hostile atmosphere at the beach by repeatedly subjecting uh, Beth Farragher and other female lifeguards to uninvited and offensive touching by making lewd remarks, by speaking of women in offensive terms. The complaint continued specific allegations that Terry once said he would never and Terry's the top person here, correct? Yeah. So Terry says, uh, I will never uh, promote a woman to the rank of lieutenant. And that Silverman had said to Farragher, date me or clean toilets for a year. And I got to tell you, John, because of the brevity of our broadcast today, there are all kind of comments made. And those were two of the, the biggest ones. And so those comments, right? And so I, I'm just trying to understand. So those comments, obviously Beth and Nancy heard those comments and then they wrote them down as part of their official complaint, right? They, they're the ones that said, hey, these people said this. Absolutely. And you can, you can read it in the official court documents and, and records. Okay. Uh, but that's, so, so let's look at the timeline. 1990, the original uh, letter gets written to the city. 
winter of 1990, they filed the official EEOC complaint. Uh, it's two years later in 1992 that they, that they move forward, that, that Beth moves forward with a lawsuit. But it's not until June 1994, following a trial, the United States Southern District of Florida in Miami ruled in her favor, ordered the two supervisors to pay Beth Farragher $10,500 in damages under the state law. And also under federal law, she won, get this, a whopping $1 from the city. Right. Yeah. And sometimes it's not about the money value. Right. I mean, I think a lot of times we think, oh, we see these big things, but it's that recognition that you messed up. Right. It's that recognition that you did something wrong. And that one dollar, I hope Beth still has it. I hope she has it on her wall somewhere saying, hey, we did this. We fought this. We made them know that they were wrong. I well, really there do. is a there is an interesting postscript to that one dollar. Okay. So, folks, you got to stick around to the All end right. for that one. Okay, it's okay, funny okay. you you brought that up, John. Um, so, can I before we yeah. go on? Because I just want to make sure because this is the discussion you and I were having before we started today. So, it's really important that people know that Beth filed complaint within the one hundred eighty dollar eighty days or the three hundred days in Florida. Um, to the EEOC, right? Because that's part of it. If the employee waits too long, then that does, it's no longer a viable lawsuit. They can't go to the EEOC. Exactly, exactly. And the other thing we talked about was, but what if a company has a policy? And you see, the city of Boca Raton had adopted an anti-harassment policy in 1986, but that wasn't enough because it also had a duty to enforce that policy. And city officials had failed to both disseminate the policy and inform employees of the complaint procedure, much less track the supervisor's behavior. And that's what came out in this first trial. Yeah. And I, one, the one thing that amazes me when you go back and read this trial is that that sexual harassment, anti-harassment policy never got down to the lifeguards. Like you have a policy and you never reach it to a set of employees. Well, of course you're going to get in trouble, right? I mean, I think that's like, to me, that's the employers need to take that away. We all need to go, is this being disseminated to everyone on our team? Do they all have access? Do they all know that? And so it really frustrates me when I read that. I was like, what? How can you not? Like that would be HR 101. But exactly. it happens, right? And so we don't know, right? We don't know from the documents. We couldn't read it in there. Did Terry get it and not disseminate it to his team? Maybe. Um, but that's not necessary. Still, somebody above him needs to go, hey, where's the signatures? Did they sign this? Where's the training going on? So, sorry, I get just a sense when I... No, exactly. Exactly. And so uh, now you might think this is where it ends. But the case got appealed two years later in 1996, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals overturned the original district court decision that the city was liable. And Farragher's dollar victory in particular, uh, and including uh, the order of the city of Boca Raton to pay her attorney's fees uh, and court costs, got overturned. Um, and so just let's be clear. So when it, the case was appealed, it was appealed by the city of Boca Raton. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So they said, you know what? We don't believe in this. We don't want to have to pay for the dollar plus the court costs and the fees, which was probably still hardly anything comparatively what we see out there. 
Um, and so they said, okay, we're going to appeal this. We don't think it was right. Exactly. So, okay. you know, it's interesting. Farragher, uh, Beth Farragher said in an interview years later, she said, look, money was not the issue. In, in fact, uh, I will tell you, John, money couldn't be the issue because harassment occurred uh, that occurred be- before the, you know, the 1964 Civil Rights Act was amended in 1991. And, and that's when they started allowing for punitive damages. But she said, look, money was never the issue. The main reason we filed the lawsuit was to be sure that those two guys couldn't do it to more women. You see, there were three supervisors, by the way, uh, and one supervisor really didn't harass them as much. So that's why they primarily filed against these two guys. But she's saying it happened to every female lifeguard there. They almost all came and testified for us. Wow. Right. And that's sort of looking ahead or looking back and go, what can we do to protect the people that are going to have this job after us? Right. What can we do? And sometimes you got to take that stand. And I'm glad Beth and the people did that. Right. They took the stand for everybody. And I'm glad everyone came in and testified about it. Yeah. So, you know, this is a famous case for those of us that are in HR that are studying for our certifications. And what a lot of people don't know by now um, Beth Ferger had not only didn't only not only had a thorough understanding of the law. See, because here's the interesting side of the story. She actually, after she went through her and got her bachelor's degree, she decided to enroll in law school at Case Western Reserve in Cleveland and eventually graduated in 1993 and moved to Colorado. And now, years later, November of 1997, she gets a call from the U.S. Supreme Court that her case is now going to be reviewed by them. Yeah, and and I could just imagine getting that call years later. Remember, this started in 1990, went to 1992, 1994, overturned in 1996, and then 1997, she gets this phone call. Yeah, you would assume that her lawyer, her teams of lawyers was pursuing this and they appealed the 11th court district ruling and said, like, we want to take this to the Supreme Court. But as we all know, not every single case gets up to the Supreme Court. Right. And so yeah. sometimes it doesn't happen. So this was one of the ones the Supreme Court looked at and said, we think there's something there. We think there's something there to help us better define this law. Yeah, exactly. In fact, that summer of 1998, the Supreme Court looked at two cases. This is one of them. The other one we're going to talk about in episode two okay. uh, coming up, folks. But okay. on June 26, 1998, the U.S. Supreme Court reinstated the damages Beth Farragher was initially award- awarded. And get this, they ruled seven to two that under Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, an employer may be liable for supervisory employees whose sexual harassment of subordinates results in a hostile work environment amounting to job description. However, the court also held that an employer could make an affirmative defense in certain situations. So let's go back, because I think you said a hostile work environment amounting to job discrimination, correct? That's what you, that's what you yes. said? Yes. Okay. 
So they went back. Okay, so 7-2 is unusual, right? Unusual in our Supreme Court. Um, and so they held that the employer, the employers, in this case, the city of Boca, Boca, Boca Raton, can be high liable for what their supervisors did um, to create a sexual uh, harassment or a hostile yep. work environment. Okay. Absolutely. See, um, and it basically since... Beth, here's the deal. Beth got her job. She worked for five years and then she left on her own. And since there was no tangible or adverse job related actions, like Beth was never terminated. She never missed a promotion. She didn't get a raise. uh, The court, the Supreme Court still basically said sexual harassment is illegal and an employer can be held liable for the actions of its employees. Chuck, this has been interesting. Let's take a quick break and we'll be back in a minute. The other day, I had a business owner ask me, how do I hire someone who isn't going to make the same mistake as the idiots in your story? It's simple, I said, hire someone who is certified in human resources. Both SHRM and HRCI have programs that certify individuals in human resources. This shows the hiring company that they have the knowledge and experience needed to keep your organization out of trouble. More and more businesses are hiring certified human resources professionals because they know it reduces the organization's risk. My advice to HR professionals, get certified. Research suggests that those individuals who are certified make an average of $10,000 more per year and have a higher career satisfaction. One of the steps in getting certified is using a prep course to prepare for the exam. In fact, those who don't use a prep course fail at a higher rate than those that do. Our friends at Andre Prep have provided a link on our website so our listeners can get a discount for their self-guided HR certification prep course. It's the same one Chuck used to renew his senior HR professional certification last year. For more information, go to hrstoriespodcast.com. So if I'm right, and I remember going back and reading these court cases, the 11th court never said that there wasn't a hostile work environment, right? They never said there wasn't a hostile work environment. What they said was the city wasn't responsible for that hostile work environment. Is that correct? You are correct. Your head. Okay. You are correct. Okay. Yeah, I'm shaking my head, folks. You can't see it, but I'm shaking my head. And that's where the Supreme Court went back and said, look, even though there was no adverse or tangible job-related action, still... Uh, you know, uh, the, the deal is that they said, and it's our opinion as a Supreme Court, they said that employers may raise, um, and, and there is a defense to this, John, uh, for employers. Right. So you are correct. They, they were, Supreme Court reversed that, that appeals. And, but they said, you know what, look, there is a defense to this, and employers can raise what they call an affirmative defense. And these affirmative defenses have, have two elements. Number one, employers must have exercised reasonable care to prevent and promptly correct any sexually harassing behaviors. Okay, so let's get into that because I've read that. I've read that hundreds of times, right? And I go back and I'm like, what the heck does that mean? What does exercise reasonably care to prevent? So is that sexual harassment training? Is that uh, anti-harassment policy how much do I need to do to be on the right side of the law? Everything. 
I, it's everything what you just said. It's, it's having a policy, communicating that policy, uh, but it's the training. Yeah. So reasonable care to prevent and promptly correct. So it's, it's training and it's training your, all of your employees, all of your hourly employees, all of your management employees, training everyone as far as what is sexual harassment, um, training managers of what their responsibilities are. And I would do it every year. In fact, some states now mandate it. Yeah, so I was just going to say that. So we know in some states, New Jersey, New York, California, they all mandate sexual harassment training. A lot of states don't, um, but a lot of states, what they have in their law says, we strongly urge employers to do training, right? And I think when I teach people, when I'm consulting with people, what I say that, what that means is if you do it, that's going to give you that affirmative defense, right? That's going to protect you where cases on here. And I think one of the things that you address, but I want to cut back to is that in this case, with Beth, there was no tangible employment action, right? Nothing happened to her. She wasn't fired. She wasn't demoted. She never had to clean the bathrooms. But there was still a hostile work environment. Um, and so when we think about the affirmative defense, if there is tangible evidence, promoted, uh, demoted, uh, fired, given hard assignments that would not normally be their work, doesn't matter what you do. Right. In that case, the employer is going to be responsible. But in this, exactly. case, in this case, there was no tangible action. Um, and so but there was failure in this case. There wasn't they, the lifeguards never saw the anti-harassment policy. Um, and then the city of Bo Boca Raton did not really oversee these people. Like then no one went down and said, hey, how are these bosses doing? What's going on? Um, and so those were the issues as well. OK, so I got it now. I'm feeling good. Yeah, uh, yeah. Promptly correct any sexual harassment behavior. So if something does happen, somebody does complain, you boom, you're immediately on it, right? And so we're always telling everybody in our classes, sexual harassment complaint needs to go to the top of the line. You can't be like, oh, I'll get to that next month. You need to address it, right? You need to drop everything else you're doing and address it right away. Absolutely. Bad and document it. that efforts. We'll see. You've actually touched on number two, what right. the Supreme Court uh, considered an affirmative defense. And number two is, victimized employees. And, and by the way, the, the, the current um, HR speak on that, you're not a victimized employee, you're a target, you're a target of harassment. Um, but they use the term victimized employees unreasonably, uh, another defense, basically, if the victimized employee uh, failed to take advantage of any preventative or corrective opportunities provided by the employer. But keep in mind, the court added that these affirmative defenses, as you said, John, are unavailable when the harassment ends in tangible adverse job-related actions, including demotions and discharges. So what they're saying there is that the employer needs, the employee needs to go to somebody in the organization and say, hey, this is happening to me. Is that how am I, am I interpreting that? As a, you exactly. The okay. And the city of Boca Raton never laid that out yeah. to, to Beth and her, her coworkers. And, and as I remember, when I read the sexual harassment policy that Boca, city of Boca Raton had, right, the one they had, lifeguards didn't see it, but they did have one. 
it said if there is an issue to go direct to your supervisor. So they didn't give them an avenue to go to if it was your supervisor, right? And so when we're building our sexual harassment policies, it's really important that not only we tell them to go to their supervisor if it's somebody else, but it is their supervisor or somebody in their chain of command, they should either go to HR or if we don't have an HR person, there should be somebody on the executive team that handles these things and they should go to that person. Exactly, you know, and I gotta tell you, a lot of times uh, people ask, why did she never report the harassment? It goes in line with what you just brought up. And I have her own words here, if I could read them to you. Absolutely. As to I why hear. she never did that. So she says, there were several reasons. When, when she reported some of the behavior to a lifeguard captain, he actually discouraged reporting the incidents to City Hall. And in fact, he cautioned against it. The supervisors to whom she reported were the ones harassing her. She said she feared losing her job. And Bill Terry, the top dog there, she said, was a god on the beach patrol. And those who crossed him suffered retaliation, such as bad schedules, poor tower assignments, or termination. And, and get this, John, in regards to what you said, Beth Farragher also said she was unaware of any sexual harassment policy or reporting mechanism during the time she worked for the city. Remember, she started in 1985. Yeah. In 1986, the city of Boca Raton issued a sexual harassment policy, but she says she never saw it. The policy was never posted anywhere in the Marine Safety Headquarters. Um, she said, but what hung in the locker room at the headquarters was a poster of a semi-nude woman clothed only in a sheer negligee. In fact, <laughs> she once... She stated once that this showed her how the harassers felt about women and strongly indicated that reporting any harassment would be unwise. And then finally, she says, as a woman in a very male-oriented profession, she believed that she just basically had to put up with it. And yeah, because she, oh, yeah, she didn't want to be labeled as a sissy, she Sorry. said. Yeah, and one of the things I want everyone to kind of think about is when we do have um a male dominated or a female dominated right when we have a gender dominated industry and we are bringing other the other gender in in this case um we know there's going to be friction in there and we got to know that's going to happen right we have to be aware of that and it doesn't just have to be gender right because it could be other types of discrimination as well and as hr professionals we got to be thinking okay what could happen what can we do to protect these individuals and that sometimes that means getting down there, being down there more often than we normally would. Um, and just making sure that we are fighting for those individuals and making sure they're aware that they can come to us if things are not being done the way they are gonna be done. Um, and we see it, right? We see these male dominated cultures. Um, and sometimes when we have a female moving into that, there's definitely that friction, um, but we gotta change that mindset. We have to change that mindset in businesses. Yeah. So the, the postscript of, of this whole situation is that Beth once said, Beth Ferger once said that if these two supervisors had not worked for the city of Boca Raton, she might still be lifeguarding today. She said it was an ideal job. She worked six hours, paid for eight. The pay was great. The lifeguards were wonderful people, except for those two supervisors. She has some of her closest friends today 
are still the lifeguards she met while working for Boca Raton. And I will tell you, ladies and gentlemen, Beth Farragher is still very much alive today, still very active, and she is a judge in Colorado. So she is active in the legal community. And uh, I think that's kind of a, a cool a cool story. A that cool is that's a great kind of, kind of story. And I, how, how things shape your lives as you go through them. And I, and I want to go back here to a little bit about this hostile work environment. Um, because I think, right, well, there's things in the news right now with Como and all that stuff, going, Governor Como going on, that we have to really get into the other person's eyes and see it from their perspective. Why would that reasonable person feel that this is harassment? And a lot of times we may not see that from ourselves. We got to go put ourselves, we got to have that empathy to go, hey, what are they feeling? What are they, what's going on in their life that they feel maybe it's not the best thing that's going on? And really yeah, address so, that. Exactly. Now, I, I will tell you, the decision in Farragher versus the city of Boca Raton wasn't the only sex harassment case uh, the Supreme Court decided in June of 1998. Like I alluded earlier, uh, in its ruling, there was another case uh, called Burlington Industries versus Ellerth, and it determined that harassment did not have to result in tangible harm in order to be actionable. But that, John, is another story. Oh, fantastic. So we are, my understanding is that is season, that, that is on for season two. That's going to be the second episode, right? We're going to get into uh, the Elrith story. Absolutely. Oh, okay. and I do have a little uh, post postscript. Uh, okay. Clarence Thomas right. was, was the judge in both cases. And here's an interesting fact. And if those of us that remember when Clarence Thomas went through his um, nomination, there was a big sexual harassment situation with him. And here's the interesting fact of the two people that dissented on both of those cases, by the way, Clarence Thomas offered dissent in both decisions. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So, so let's go back here. I'm an employer. What should I be doing? What should I be doing? I'm an employer. What, I mean, I think we covered, but let's just recap and go, okay, here's the things we want you to take away from that. Yeah, uh, number one, have a policy. Number two, communicate that policy. Number three, do the training on the policy. You see all of that shows good faith effort, but good faith effort isn't enough. You need to have those things in place. You need to document them and you need to quickly investigate and document any, any, claims of harassment, sexual harassment, because that good faith effort needs to be to have a good faith defense. You need to have all of those things in place. That's great. Yeah. Now, one thing that I would add to that as a final thoughts um, is we have to be aware of what's going on in all of our organization. Right. And so a lot of times we have these diverse departments and because they're so I worked in the theater. I worked for a big hotel chain and I worked for the theater and we were pretty much isolated. I was the only one. I was the production manager. I was the only one really with contact with the hotel staff. Um, my staff wasn't. And I will say that there were probably things that I didn't pass on as a young manager that I should have. Um, and so you got to make sure that they're incorporated. They feel part of that. 
and they're getting the information that they need to be successful in your workplace. And so sometimes there are those people that have that strong personalities that seem to have everything going from the outside, but we got to go in and investigate and see what's going on, do surveys, do in, in stay interviews. What's going on? Make sure that everyone is comfortable. Absolutely. All right, John. And ladies and gentlemen, if you want to read more of this story in Beth Farragher's own words, look in the show notes. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to HR Stories Podcast. The material presented in this podcast is for informational purposes only. Chuck and John always recommend using the employment lawyer to handle any legal HR issues. We do our best to double check sources and make sure the information we are providing is accurate. We may eliminate or embellish without changing the basic narrative to make the story easier to understand. In certain circumstances, we may change in identifying information to protect the innocent. If you have any questions, please reach out, reach out to us at help at hrstoriespodcast.com. Thank you for listening to the HR Stories Podcast, where there is a lesson in every story.